You are listening to episode 84 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Tim Bainton. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another fantastic episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Iranshad and I bring you weekly interviews and podcast episodes to help you improve your tennis game and take your game to the next level. And today we have a great interview with Tim Bainton, who is the founder of uh, Blue Chip Sports Management. And uh, it's a great interview, especially for tennis coaches in particular, or to get insights about the world of tennis coaching, because Tim really grinded, which is a word that I really like to use. You know, he put the pedal to the metal and did everything that he could despite any situations that he was in to improve his status in the coaching world, network, make great connections with people. And I think this is something that you can all learn from, even if you're not a tennis coach, if you're a tennis player or in other industries, to just figure out what you need to do to take whatever passion or career you have to the next level. And that's why I especially appreciate talking with Tim today on the podcast about that and uh, other aspects of tennis and improving the state of the industry as well. But also to take it back personally, uh, I've been trying to play a lot more tennis, or I actually have been playing a lot more tennis, and it's really shown in uh, an increased feel in my game, and I've been able to work on a lot more things and think about the game, and you know, my goal is just to try to improve 1% every day on the court. I know it's a, it's a very common saying that you've heard from a lot of great experts like Alistair McCaw and Paul Anacone and a lot of lot of people. So just really important to improve and, and do your best and try to figure out what you can improve in your game and to work on them and not just do the same old routine because then obviously you'll be stuck in the same exact skill level that you are. So anyways, I hope that you really enjoy this interview and I will not bore you further with an intro, I guess. So without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Bainton. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. I'm really excited to have Tim Bainton on the show today to talk about the state of the tennis industry, as well as his journey to leading an amazing company called Blue Chip Sports Management, and also uh, to have Tim talk about some tips to help you improve your game as well. Um, I'm really happy to have Tim on, as I mentioned, and to give uh, a brief background, I guess, (laughs) uh, on Tim. You know, he's got a lot of uh, fantastic uh, accomplishments and accolades, but Tim is the founder for all blue chip sports management subsidiaries at all locations. Uh, Tim also oversees all areas of Blue Chip Tennis Academy's teaching and programming and is its executive director. Tim's work has thankfully to, I'm sure many coaches listening, has created tons of jobs in the tennis industry and he is particularly focused on the professionalization of the tennis teaching teaching industry as a whole. And Tim is also certified at the highest levels, including being a USTA high performance coach, a USPTA P1 and PTR professional, and he has also been awarded 
awarded uh, numerous times, specifically with the USTA Mid-Atlantic Teaching Professional of the Year Award in 2010, and as well as the USTA Virginia Teaching Professional of the Year in 2011. And the list goes on, and PTR Virginia Pro of the Year Award in 2016. But I, I know from listening to a, a recent episode with Mike Baugh that you're not really focused on that anymore, Tim. And But Tim, uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming onto the podcast, and I'm excited to speak with you today. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate it too. It, it, you know, I'm a fan of the podcast, and you've got uh, quite humbling to actually uh, be on it based on some of the uh, the legends of the game that you've had a chat with. So, um, just yeah, happy to be here and looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Tim. I really appreciate it. And first question, you know, everyone loves cool accents, and I think you've got one yourself. So, can you tell us where you or your parents are from? Sure. Yeah, I um, I actually uh, I, I had. I had no excuse but to fall in love with tennis because I grew up uh, about 10 minutes from Wimbledon. Wow. So uh, I, I came over to play college tennis in 2001. And the f- a funny fact is I'm now 36 years of age. So I've spent half my life in England and half my life here in the U.S. So I, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm what you might call a mutt, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, Tim. Do, do we have a winner? I mean, you have an exact amount of time split in both the U.S. and the U.K. Is there a preference there, or? Well, I, I'll tell you what. It is, uh, you know, I, I've had such a wonderful opportunity afforded to me in the tennis world in the U.S. So I'm very grateful for that. I've uh, met my lovely wife here in the U.S. So, but you know, I, there's definitely uh, creature comforts of, of England. I, I, I stand by the fact London's the greatest city in the world. So, um, you know, but I, I'm lucky. I, I get the best of both worlds. So wonderful, Tim and. One more, I guess, fun question for you is, uh, so I'm a Tottenham Hotspurs fan. Uh, do you have a team uh, that you root for? I sure do. It's Crystal Palace for my sins, oh. but the rest of my family are Tottenham Hotspur fans. So, All right. You got, and, and, and if I may remind you, we beat you in the FA Cup a couple of weeks ago. Ah, uh, yes, yes, I remember that. But uh, yeah, you know, we're doing doing pretty well. No, know, you know, yeah. hopefully we can catch City, but I don't know if we'll do that or Liverpool too. But so, Tim, what was your first memory of actually hitting a tennis ball? Uh, so what my story was. Um, neither of my parents were were tennis players, and I've got a, I've got one sister who's eighteen months younger than me, and my mom basically once my sister and I were uh, old enough to. Um, I suppose what what we call in the U.S. he'd go into a nursery. We call it a crash in England. Um, my mom was sort of, you know, look, I want to get back in shape. I've had a couple of kids. And she took us to what was a local tennis and, and health club. And um, with, the ex, with the expectation of, you know, mom was going to go work out and we were going to basically be in the childcare. Well, I wasn't having any of that. And um, as my mom, you know, I kicked and screamed and my mom you know, said, hey, you know, what what have you guys got going on? And they said, well, it's actually the first day of summer camp, and that's a tennis camp. So my mom put me in the morning camp, which was from 9 a.m. until 12 noon, and, and then basically tried to get me out at 12. And that half day became a full day, became a week, became 12 weeks of the entire summer, and the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> so um, – uh, I owe it all to my mom trying to get back in shape as to how I fell into tennis. Wow, that's wonderful. And what in particular about tennis, you know, probably what what you loved in tennis back then is the same thing as what you love now. But what in particular about tennis uh, drew you to the sport and made you so passionate about it? Well, it definitely was a journey. I mean, initially it was I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the, you know, played a lot of other sports growing up in England, those 
you know, traditional school sports of, of soccer, rugby and cricket. And, and so tennis was something that I hadn't experienced yet, which I liked. And just honestly, na- naturally was better at it than I was at some of the other sports that I had taken to. But one of the other things that I owe someone a massive debt of gratitude is that first day when I was at that camp, there was a a young pro who just got back from college. Her name was Claire Pollard. Now, Claire's one of the most successful collegiate coaches in the country at Northwestern, but um, right time, right place. Um, you know, I had a wonderful experience with her in, 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 in showing the game, in, in making it fun, uh, you know, for someone that, that, that uh, you know, remember that summer very vividly and very fondly. That's wonderful, Tim. Before we go on with uh, asking you about your very interesting tennis career, I was curious to ask you this. Um, what are three things that most of the world does not know about Tim Bainton? <laughs> I think in I think in today's Facebook world, probably nothing. Um, <laughs> well, um, I actually I, I I love to read, which is a bit a bit nerdy, but that's uh, something I very much enjoy and always have done. Um, I what else? Let me see. Well, you got that I was a Crystal Palace fan. Mm-hmm. I have three dogs that are all rescues. My wife has got me uh, very passionate about rescuing animals, and um, that's something that we enjoy together. And a third thing, hmm, believe it or not, I was actually a nationally ranked cross-country runner up to about the age of 16 years of age. Wow, very interesting, especially given that the uh, cross-country, if I remember correctly, it's a long-distance type of sport, whereas tennis is more short sprints and whatnot. Um, Correct, yeah. Very cool. I was never... that was something that, um, yeah, most people that know me today will get a chuckle out of that when they hear that one. So, Very cool. Very cool. And when you mentioned uh, having the three rescue dogs, I think that's really awesome. And I think recently Kevin Anderson and his wife Kelsey held a charity event for, uh, I, I guess, related to, to dogs. And, and so that's, yeah, I, I just t- thought of that. But that's, that's really cool. What breed uh, are your dogs? We've got an Oakman Lab, who's the youngest, uh, three got a collie springer and we've also got a labradoodle very cool very cool that's wonderful so tim you did mention that you played college tennis which is fantastic i did as well and so i was wondering if we could just touch a bit about your competitive career and if you could kind of just describe you know how that went and then how you actually ended up you know coming to the u.s uh for college and and playing yeah sure so you know i started playing that that um you know my first experience on the court i think i was maybe seven at the time and um so then just fell in love with it and did what most people do i was afforded the possibilities to uh do camps to do clinics um i was part of a grew up playing uh, at a club that at the time was called the chris lane tennis and health center and it was it was pretty revolutionary at the time this would have been in the late well, sort of 1990, I suppose, you know, it had, um, it was sort of one of these, um, you know, now you see the lifetime fitnesses of the world. It was really um, kind of like that, but a little bit of ahead of its time. It had, you know, indoor outdoor pool, had um, uh, 12 indoor courts, like 12 outdoor and um, all the other stuff. And uh, so I, I, I was able to, it was close enough to where I lived that I, you know, my parents could drop me off quite easily. And I was able to walk there after school and so on and so forth. And then started playing junior tournaments. And um, in England, a lot of the training back when I was growing up was very, very regionalized into um, into states. So I suppose the way that you have the sections of the USTA is, is similar. But we would have um, the best players in each section would all train together. 
Um, now, England's small enough that that's obviously very feasible. Um, but we would train at a place uh, called St. George's College, which had, um, which was a, a, a private school in a place called Weybridge in Surrey, where uh, eventually I ended up then going to school full time to train. And um, uh, still to this day, I mean, we had on, on a school campus, we had grass courts, red clay, indoor, outdoor, hard, um, you know, just a phenomenal opportunity in which to, to play. So the combination of being able to train before school, at lunchtime, get early release after school, and it all be right there. Travel with the best players in our section, um, which obviously I think people will relate to when I say that word section. Obviously, we just refer to it as our county, actually. And the school is, is kind of cool because it was also, an, it was a place where a lot of, uh, the, with the grass courts, you'd see practice, practice matches prior to Wimbledon and Eastbourne and exhibitions. I remember late and Hewitt hitting there back in the day, uh, Mikhail Yuzny. And so they were all there and, you know, just be a couple of courts down or just exposed to that um, was really cool. And at the time, it was led by um, really my main coach growing up, a, a gentleman called Justin Shering. Um, Justin's gone on and done great things. Uh, most recently worked with Jonah Conta as well. So he really, again, I, I've been, I, I want to harp on that real quick because both Claire uh, Pollard and Justin, I mean, to get exposed to really great coaches a little bit by luck and charm is definitely something that I owe a great debt of gratitude for keeping me in the sport. Um, and also learning, you know, as I look back now, it's from coaching, you know, learning so many uh, just great values and ways to inspire um, and, you know, and how to handle yourself as a coach. So um, it all, it's all kind of come full circle. Um, now, what that meant then was, you know, in England, we would play on this thing called the, uh, the Adidas circuit. And it was basically the top 16 players in the country every weekend would travel to somewhere in the United Kingdom and basically play a guaranteed four-match format, a compass draw. And uh, I did these. I used to get on a train on a Friday night, um, you know, to save money I'd by myself and uh, go stay in some dingy hotel or motel. This was before the days of being able to book things on Expedia and this and that, um, you know, and play four matches. And we would go to some... Um, uh, if anyone's listening, not to hate on some of these locations, but some some very seedy parts of England, because what had happened was um, the national lottery system had started a few years earlier, and to rejuvenate some bad parts of the country, they built massive indoor uh, sporting facilities. So a lot of these events would happen at these places because obviously they had um, access. So you've got these brand new facilities, but I tell you what, getting off a train where, you know, with your big tennis bag and your shorts and your T-shirt on and walking, you know, it was a bit hairy back back then, I remember. But I mean, I would play, I was, you know, I, I grew up in a generation in England with people that, you know, the real tennis fans will know these names. I mean, like people like Ross Hutchins and uh, Morgan Phillips and uh, Richard Bloomfield, Alex Bogdanovich uh, and uh, Matt Smith and a whole load of players that, you know, went on and played, if you know, close to top 100 in the world in either singles and doubles. I mean, Ross was obviously top 100 in the world in doubles. So, you know, I, I had that. And uh, in looking back, was was part of that fabric of up and coming young players in the United Kingdom and, and continue to do so. And like, I think most players, at least at that time in my generation was, you know, if you weren't getting a Wimbledon wildcard at 18, you were going to go take advantage of getting a scholarship to go play in the US. And 
and that's really what what happened for me so and my goal was to play for um was actually just to come in, in england it's quite common to take a gap year because university in england is only three years and uh, i was going to come play a year, a year of college tennis and then basically come back and study in England. And, um, you know, one year became four. And now, like I said, 18 years in America, the rest is history. Yeah, wonderful stuff. When you mentioned the fact that they they had built these nice tennis facilities in seedy locations, that kind of reminds me of how usually casinos in the US, they always end up putting them in like the worst places. So but yeah, that's very interesting, Tim. And uh, I realize that, you know, we're not that far apart and I, I feel like we missed playing each other by only a couple of years because I ended up playing at UMBC and as I and we've uh, we obviously played you which I'll let you you know mention but uh your experience in college but how did that work because obviously it's very different uh or it's more easily accessible for us in the U.S. to check out uh, U.S. campuses and all that so I mean did you have multiple different uh, colleges in the U.S. that you were considering, and like, can you kind of describe that process for for this? Yeah, of, of course. So, so like, actually, um, my senior year, um, the goal had been to go and play in the U.S., and I went through an agency. Um, I mean, the lady literally came to my house and sat down with my parents, and we wrote her a check for about I think five hundred pounds, and it was called college prospects of America. And I have no idea if it's still around today, but basically they were the conduit that marketed you to colleges in the US. And I had offers from everywhere from Presbyterian, Lander at the sort of D, D2, D3 level, all the way up to Purdue. And I think Purdue was probably the, the biggest school there that was interested. And then, um, and basically what happened was I, I started to lean more to not going for a period of time. And, um, so then sort of took that break and uh, George Mason, when I changed my mind at the last minute, um, you know, uh, the coach at George Mason at the time just really hadn't, uh, hadn't recruited the way I think he should have done and, and still had some scholarships available. And uh, it was sight unseen. My only decision for going there was it was the most money. And also because um, it's got a very, uh, I wanted to study economics. And it was uh, at the time they had two Nobel laureates on their staff. But I'd never been, I'd been to the US, I'd done, you know, Disneyland and I had uh, relatives in Minneapolis of all places, but I'd, I'd never been to Washington DC or this area. So yeah, very much sight unseen. And the, the crazy part for me was um, I actually arrived in the US, uh, I think it was three or four days before 9-11 happened. So quite a uh, quite quite an interesting period. <laughs> so indeed, yeah, yeah, that's pretty crazy. So, uh, what was your experience like uh, in college? I mean, I know for me it was really uh, a lot of fun traveling around, playing tennis, and you know, being with people who had similar and different interests than you. And but you, yours is amplified by the fact that you're you know now in a different a place with a different culture, you know, or, or certain different cultures. So, yeah, just describe for us, you know, how how the college experience went as an Englander. It was interesting. I like I said I, I I wanted to play college tennis. My first two years really enjoyed every moment of it, the camaraderie, the traveling, and everything else. And then again, I'm I'm going to mention this because it's it's so relative to where I am today. Was my last two years, you know, it was kind of like okay, we weren't going to go pro. I was lucky enough to play, uh, you know, one on a team at the time that was in the CAAs with the you know powerhouses like William and Mary and. Old Dominion, VCU, uh, UNCW, they're all at the time were nationally ranked teams. 
So I regularly got, you know, got to play people that kicked my butt, but at a level that was fantastic to, to at least play against. I didn't, you know, I enjoyed the school. Um, George Mason going through a tremendous transition um, and level of investment during the time that I was there. There was always something new being built left, right and center. And anyone that's familiar with the school now from what it was back then, I mean, it's unrecognizable. But I was sort of there when that first all began to take place. And uh, so that was an exciting piece. And you know, um, I wouldn't say I fell in love with Fairfax, Virginia, but it was, um, it, it, it's not the worst, you know, it's, it's a nice enough city, not the most exciting, but nice enough. And um, yeah, and I mean, as I said, I, I've always, I've always been a, someone that's a proponent of education and I, you know, I worked hard and got my degree and I, you know, did, you know, I'd love to say there was lots of debauchery and crazy stories, uh, but um uh, you know, it was a good student and uh, I enjoyed playing tennis, enjoyed my teammates. Um, there's always a little bit of regrets, the wrong word, but a little bit of, you know, I, I wish I, I wish I had pushed myself harder. I think that was both a product of, you know, I mean, George Mason's division one program, but it's not at the level of a Stanford or a USC by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, I look back at where I was as a junior, especially around 16 years of age, you know, my level was, was very high and, um, you know, uh, you know, so a little bit in reflection, wished I pushed myself a little bit more, but, you know, overall, as I said, I mean, you've been there too, playing, playing college tennis and getting your degree. And especially if it's paid for, I mean, it's, you don't get a better opportunity than that. So it was, it was a, it was a wonderful time. Awesome, Tim. Yeah. And for sure, you should definitely be proud of that accomplishment. And so I think what's, what's going to be really interesting as well is to, kind of see your progression throughout your career because this is especially going to be interesting for coaches to see because you are now an especially successful uh you know individual in the tennis industry and you're you're leading a you know a very successful company as well so I'm curious to figure out you know after college like how what was your first job in the tennis world and you know how did you progress from there so there's, 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 there's just a little bit of backstory I've got to tell you about. Sure. So when I was growing up, I remember up to the age of 18, I remember any, any, having the most respect for all the coaches I worked with, those that I worked with, those that I didn't work with, those that I knew were just coaches on staff at one of maybe two or three clubs that I had played at uh, pretty much all my junior life. And I remember going back for the, the first summer and working in, um, and working as a, you know, as a, you know, working on the camps or as a hitting pro, whatever they called you, you know, to make some money in the summer back at one of the clubs that I'd grown up in, in England. And it was funny because I saw the tennis coaches within the clubs in a different light. I, I, I wasn't Tim, the up and coming junior anymore. I was Tim, one of the staff, which meant that, you know, I, we hung out, we went, we went and got beers together. We went to a nightclub together and I started to see how they were, li how they lived, how they, what their goals were for their own careers. Um, and it was, it was a little bit upsetting to me in reflection. It wasn't, you know, I'd always, I'd always looked at these coaches as these people on pedestals and, you know, and, and the reason that's important was because when I got out of college myself, I actually went and worked in um, investment banking for a short period of time because I, I didn't want anything to do with being a tennis coach. Um, I wanted to, because to me, it wasn't, it wasn't a mechanism to to grow in a career and to financially make, um, you know, not to be greedy, but to be comfortable, you know. Um, and 
and at least that was my, you know, I think it's just important that people listening understand where my thought process was. So, but what happened was after a period of working out of completely uninvolved with tennis for about seven or eight months, I, I suddenly realized it was all I loved in the world and it, re- it reignited that passion in me. So I went back to the DC area and we used to, um, at George Mason, we used to train in the winters at Burke Racket and Swim Club. And I therefore knew the tennis director there, Paul Fisher, who is literally like a second father to me today. And I said, you know, look, I'd I'd like to teach some tennis. And um, he knew me and sort of, you know, he was a bit older and didn't want to be on the court much. And um, what he did was, which was, you know, again, I'm a big believer in life about right time, right place and a lot of luck. Um, He basically in Northern Virginia, which, you know, is a very robust, you know, a lot of tennis players, a lot of money said, look, you know, you can basically run my program. I'm the director of tennis here and I have access to these courts. And I, you know, you're young and hungry and I put some trust in you. I'm going to treat you well. And just, you know, don't let me down. And I just, and I just took the opportunity. So the combination of at 20, what was I, 22 years of age, um, being given that, um, you know, and being able to run with it. And, and one thing, a couple of things that, you know, I think really worked for me was, no, you know, at that time, nobody worked harder. You know, I mean, I'm talking seven days a week, any single hour, any FaceTime, because I knew I, I didn't, I never won a Grand Slam. And I also knew that I hadn't really coached. So I had to build my base and I had to do that through marketing, promoting myself, the club, the programs, and really being passionate about that, but also being visible because, you know, anyone that started off teaching tennis, you might get a court for a couple of hours in the morning and then have a seven hour break. And then it'd be expected to come back and teach a lesson at seven. And then you're off for an hour and then teach one at 9 p.m. at night. I mean, the the schedule is ridiculous for for, for a lot of people starting out in the business, but I did it and I stuck with it because as I said, I, I wanted to, I wanted to do this for a career and I wanted to take it seriously. The second, thing that I prioritized is in today's society, you've got three types of pros that, that, that really exist when it comes to edu- continuing education. You've got those that basically go to every conference under the sun. You've got those that don't go to any conferences because they, um, they don't see any value in it. And you've got those that can't go because they can't afford to go because if they're not on the court, they're not earning money. Now, at that point in my life, I was very much somebody that didn't have the money to go and be off the court. You know, just getting started, I didn't have a salary. If I wasn't on the court, I wasn't earning money. And the crazy thing about it, and the reason I'm proud of this is because it, it, it just shows you where we, where we ended up, is, I mean, I started teaching tennis in the US for, I think it was, nine or ten dollars for a a clinic and like fourteen dollars for a private lesson back in 2005 right and as you know living in northern virginia it's not cheap so um but you know what happened was was going back to the conferences is i knew i had to i had to get my name out there so I remember going, it's actually ironic we're doing it this week because it's on right now. But I remember in 2006, I went to the PTR symposium and I slept in my car, couldn't afford a hotel room. And I had homemade business cards and I made sure I gave them to every single person that would take one off me. And I made a commitment for a number of years of no matter how much it cost, going and being involved in as much um, education, uh, predominant specifically with USTA high performance program, 
um, PTR and USPTA, um, being in, involved with as much as I could to let people know I existed. At that point, I didn't really have anything to say or anything to offer, but I wanted them to know that there was this, you know, uh, you know, young British guy that was hungry and loved tennis and was passionate about it and wanted to be a part of things. So, you know, that's something that I fully understand why people don't do it at a younger age for the reasons I just told you. But I was crazy enough to prioritize that and, 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 and put any money that I had towards that in order to, to, to receive the benefit on the back end, you know, with regards to being able to grow and to network, you know, a decade or 12 years later. Wow, Tim. Uh, I really love that. That's very inspiring. You know, this goes to show that, you know, if you have the hunger and the passion for something, you're going to find a way to make it work. And, you know, Tim at the time wasn't, you know, some sort of baller with a lot of money who could go to all these conferences and, and stay in lavish places, but he still made a commitment that he wanted to get his name out there and network. And uh, I mean, obviously, Tim, you're very successful today. And can you, kind of, to, to further amplify this point, can you kind of speak to the benefits of, of doing this? I know you mentioned that like you, you got your name out there and more people knew you, but you know, can you kind of expound upon that and, and why getting your name out there is so important and what that could do? There's two things that, again, um, I'm by no means the smartest man in the room, but there's two things that I, I knew to be true. One was I knew that I had to be able to create a network that I could then leverage. That, that I just knew was a business principle that I, I had to do if I wanted to be successful. Number two is, you know, the, the education component of it is something that gives you, there's so much information out there. And I mean, my goodness, you know, in today's day and age now with, you know, I know obviously you have the online conference and, and there's just so much information out there, which is a fantastic thing. But, you know, going back 10, 12 years ago, it wasn't like it was today. So you really did have to go to these places. You had to seek the information. And I mean, I, I was just very lucky to be right time, right place and, and to, you know, get into, uh, you know, you know, many, many experiences where I sat in the same room as legends of the game and just sat there in, on the corner of a table as we had dinner. And they probably they probably don't even remember I was there, but I sure as hell do and, and hung on every word. I mean, I remember I got into the USTA high performance program in 2008 at College Park. And it was the year that I think it was one of the last years they did it before they disbanded it for a number of years. But they still continued running all the special events through it with the Davis Cup and with the U.S. Open and training camps in Carson or Boca Raton at the time. So I got into that at 25 years of age, was the youngest person in there. By, and again, I still don't know how they, they accepted my application. But you know, I remember being there and, and, you know, and in my class there, you know, you had, you know, someone like, you know, Mark Dixon, who was 10 in the world, you know, so, and there we are on the court learning to be better coaches together. I mean, I had no business being there, you know, but it's, it's little things like that, that I believe a lot of hard work and a lot of hustle and dedication to it and trying to be, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve. I mean, another side story, I remember going to Carson, California, and there were people like Tom Gullickson um, and Jonathan Stark. Martin Blackman was there before he was the GM for USTA. And I remember we were at dinner one night. And th so it's a, it's a coaching program, but you've got like, you know, people who have won majors and so on and so forth. I didn't think Jim Courier was there that night. But I remember, oh, Tom Gorman was there as well, obviously former Davis Cup captain. So I'm sitting there and I know who these people are. And, and again, they, 
they don't know. You know, I'm sitting there on the corner of this table as part of this group. And I remember, you know, I remember Jonathan Stark, Tom Gorman saying to Jonathan Stark, hey, tell us that story about, about Martina. And like, so, you know, and this is like just in this little Mexican restaurant in this back room. So, you know, I obviously know who Jonathan Stark was. I remember watching him at Wimbledon back in the day. And he tells this story. He goes, and it's just an amazing story to have sat there. He goes, um, oh, well, yeah, you know, I was I was just broke into top 20 in the world and uh, I wasn't going to play doubles at, uh, I wasn't going to play mixed doubles at Wimbledon because I really wanted to focus on my singles performance. And he tells a story where he says he's renting an apartment with his mum in Southfields in, in Wimbledon and uh, he gets a phone call and he picks up the phone and he sort of hangs up and his mum says to him, who was that? And he goes, oh, it was Martina Navratilova. She wanted to play mixed doubles with me. And I told her, no, I'm going to focus on my singles. To which his mom, to which his mom promptly responded, "Call her back, you know? Are you crazy?" And it obviously went on. He obviously went on and actually won that mixed doubles title at Wimbledon with her. But to be a fan of the game and to, you know, from from like I said, I never won a major and just, but and I've and I've been, you know, I could tell stories like that all all day long, you know. But just very lucky, very blessed. But again, like anyone listening, that came from uh, that. Those opportunities came because. I, I wasn't willing to accept no for an answer. You know, I was, uh, you know, call it maybe a little brash or whatever, but I was, I was willing to kind of push and push my way in uh, because I wanted to get better and I wanted to, you know, be in a position where I am today. That was always the goal. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that sort of stuff has just been a wonderful experience. I mean, I remember, uh, goodness me, when was this like maybe 2010 or 11, I remember driving back from Richmond. I was at a tournament and, um, and uh, someone from USTA Mid-Atlantic section called me on my cell phone and said, hey, can you get over to the Verizon Center? We need to have a coach on court to facilitate the, um, the uh, what they call it, the Outback series that was going on at the Verizon Center at the time. Can you, can you get over there? And I was like, well, absolutely I can. And I proceeded to be on the court and, and, and even hit a couple of balls with Agassi, Chang, Courier and Sampras. I mean, it, you know, it, but again, that's an example of where, you know, USTA Mid-Atlantic, I was a young coach. They wouldn't have known who I was unless I'd try to, I, you know, I was sort of banging on their door and, you know, hey, how can I work with you? How can I volunteer? What can I be a part of? You know, and, and you know, so that day when they're like, oh, you know, we better have someone there to help them out. Who do we call, right? So again, that goes back to the network thing. You know, it, it's, it, it's really about, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, especially in the game of tennis, we really need to wear it as a badge of honor. We've got to be so proud about telling everyone our story and telling people, you know, about, you know, what a wonderful sport it is so that you've got more people that are talking about tennis, but also talking about you in a positive way. Great stuff, Tim. I love it. And so with respect to coaches or people who are introverts and maybe they have trouble approaching and networking uh, with people, do you have any particular tips for those types, which I'm naturally one as well, to uh, on how to kind of network better and open up conversations and connections with, with others? So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I get it. You know, I mean, people that know me will be like, you know, oh, it probably comes easy to him. You know, oh, he's got an accent or he's a little, you know, <laughs> but, but the truth is it's the same. But I feel the same. I get nervous speaking to people. You know, when I do a presentation at an event, I'm, I'm the one in the back sweating, nervous that I'm going to mess up my lines. So, you know, I think everyone's got to realize, I think everyone gets in that situation, you know, so take, take confidence in that, that you're not alone, but then. Secondly, let it come from a place of genuineness. 
right? We're not secondhand car salesmen, right? If you're a coach and you're trying to promote tennis, you're trying to get your agenda across, always be willing to not be selling what you're trying to sell. Get people that get people wanting to know you and get asked questions about them. You know, I have a saying, handshakes and smiles. The more people you shake hands with, the more you connect on an emotional side with a smile and eye contact, um, the easier it is to have conversation and dialogue, you know? And as coaches, you know, this is essential both on and off of the court because on the court, the way you communicate is, I mean, probably the number one reason you're either going to be successful or not. If you're not communicating correctly with the audience, then that's, that's going to, you know, it doesn't matter what else you know. Um, but I think as well, it, it's kind of like people who are in denial, you know. And one thing I've got better at as I'm older is really auditing the things I'm not good at, you know, and asking for help, asking mentors, asking family, asking friends. You know, I go back to when I do presentations. My staff at Blue Chip, they could recite most of my presentations by heart because I've made them sit there in the back office over and over again and listen to me get it right, you know? So if you want to be good at anything, you've got to dedicate your time to it, right? And, it, you know, it's, it's not something that, and also enjoy it. You know, I don't think anyone teaches tennis because they don't like people. That would not make any sense to me at all, right? So enjoy, enjoy it. Yes, of course, some people are more introverted or shy. But again, practice. I mean, practice in a mirror, you know, work on your smile, you know, work on, it, 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 you know, it's all those things you can, you, can, you can improve on yourself. You know, anyone who's anyone that's going to be successful, you're constantly a work in progress. So, you know, one thing I've realized is with tennis players and coaches, you know, we obviously used to be players at some point, and with that comes some level of ego. And, you know, when you get into the workplace and you get into what, you know, I refer to as obviously the business of tennis is, you know, it, it's very easy to be set in your ways because, um, you've, you've had it so ingrained through training and through playing and being one-on-one -on -one competition. Um, so it's not necessarily easy to sort of look at yourself in a mirror and say, you know what, I can do that. I need to do that better. I need to do some research on how to do this better. I need to ask for some help. And I definitely, I mean, goodness me, I definitely, I wish I knew that back when I was 22. I didn't, you know, I had to, I had to learn some of those lessons the hard way, but you know, I, and, and surround yourself with people that are going to be honest with you. You know, you don't want to have people around you that are just saying you're the greatest thing in the world because that's not going to help you. For sure, Tim. I mean, that's a lot of great tips there. I mean, I highly encourage you if you, you know, when you're listening on the app to perhaps hit the uh, minus 30 second button a few times because, uh, you know, a lot of great things, including focusing on providing value to those around you. I mean, you know, this is uh, this example is, is a little extreme, I guess. But, you know, you don't go to the bar, approach a, a lady or, or man and say, hi, will you uh, sleep with me? You know, you, you, you provide value, you establish connections. And then that's how, you know, eventually it'll be a mutually beneficial relationship. Because um, I do see quite a few coaches, even, you know, online, like they just post like, hey, buy this. Like, who's going to who's going to buy that? You know, they, they don't know about you. They don't know about the product. So that that's just great stuff. And overall, you know, I'm just really appreciative of how, you know, how much passion you have and that you kind of keep your goals in mind. And and that, you know, even if things are uncomfortable, you know that you have to do them like speaking and getting in front of people. And uh, that's just really important there, Tim. And uh, just quickly with regards to 
these conferences that you've been to, are there a few that you recommend? Because I, I know you've you've you know you've spoken at so many, you've attended so many. Are there like a top three maybe list that you have for these conferences that maybe coaches should especially keep in mind? Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. So, so there are, can I, can I just give a little, again, just a little bit of, um, Oh yeah. Cause there's one thing I kind of, I didn't quite get to when I first started, I, like I said, I, I, I traveled and I, I, and I, at this point in time, I didn't have a club, you know, reimbursing me for costs and all this, but I made a point to do it. But what I did was, and this is what everybody that attends any conference has to do is that they have to come to a conference with a plan, right? You're spending your hard-earned money. You're away from your family, away from work. What is it that you are trying to get out of it, right? Now, obviously, that should entail an intellectual return on investment. It should have a network return on investment. And you should also look for a financial return on investment. So firstly, anyone attending conferences, keep those three things in mind, right? Second, because otherwise what will happen is you'll go to the conference, you won't have a good time, you'll get back on Monday, you'll see your credit card bill, and you'll never attend the conference again, and you'll probably get put off by education, period. So I attended these, and then as I said, I started to see and question the things I just told you, and I wasn't getting those things out of it. So I then took a hiatus of maybe four years where I then didn't attend anything, and that to me, allowed me to really focus heavily on blue chip, but it also allowed me to develop my position in the industry and my ability to then give back. So now to answer your question. In 2018, I, I'm not the record holder, but I spoke 33 times on 14 different subjects on three different continents. Now, the, the key there, and the reason why that's not sustainable, by the way, because I'm definitely not doing that this year, is to come up with 14 different original content because you value the consumer who is attending that's an awful lot of original work and content which i still to this day i've got a luckily a great team of writers that help me but i don't that that's just not sustainable and the reason i say that is people who are speaking at conferences that speak on the same regurgitated message that people can hear on YouTube or on a website or on some sort of a live feed, everyone in the industry that is contributing needs to come up with something new and innovative. It's that simple. That's why our buddy Sean Drake is such a breath of fresh air. What they're doing at Racket Fit is something fresh and innovative, and that's why it's being so well received. So now back to what you said. Firstly, anytime I get to speak at any organization anywhere in the world is a massive and a uh, massive and very humbling thing for me and and I always appreciate it because I want the anyone that's in the audience that's taking the time I have a responsibility to help you get better and I also want to genuinely learn and understand your circumstances I don't want to stand up there like oh I'm some great speaker that's not how I operate I want to know who you are what you're about what I can learn from you and what hopefully you can learn from me now the conference side is this. At the moment, there are a lot of conferences, a lot of new conferences, um, and I haven't experienced all of them. If I had to say what 
are my favorite conferences or the best ones if I can put myself in a consumer situation. I am a little biased because I'm on the board, but the Women's Tennis Coaches Association, in my opinion, have the biggest, the best energized network of coaches that create a family and a family of like-minded people that all want to be there and learn from each other. Um, Sarah Stone and, and, and Anne Grossman, obviously, because of their pro ties, are able to pull in some big name speakers and it's functioned in a much more intimate environment. The conference that we, they, we, that we did last year at the Racing Club, which is a warm-up with this, the warm-up uh, site for Roland Garros, we were at a beautiful location in the, the room probably had space for 60 and we packed 100 in there. And the speakers speak for 25 minutes. You know, Justine Hennin was the keynote, and but 25 minutes and quick to the point. Everyone's slide deck is audited extremely well. And that's the sort of environment that I think is really healthy. I get concerned when I see conferences that have multiple speakers on at the same time because people tend to put their head in and out and really not get anything from it. I think that conferences also need to, um, going off on a bit of a tangent here, but conferences need to, I don't think organizations should reach out to people, and I mean anybody, and this is something that WTCA don't, it doesn't matter if you're a superstar, we still are going to ask you to speak on something specific because we know it benefits our members, right? So there's a lot of conferences, I think, that, that reach out and say, oh, you know, just, you know, come and speak. And they don't really audit the content. They don't really ask for the slide deck. You know, I mean, I'm somebody that I want feedback. I want to know that this is something good for you. Um, the amount of times I've been asked to speak and I, I haven't been asked to send my slides in and I've sent them anyway and said, hey guys, give me some feedback. How does this work? How does this look for your audience? So WTCA events are fantastic. I think they're trending in the right direction. Have one that's a combination event with the Professional Tennis Registry coming up in March out in Indian Wells, which is a beautiful location there at the Lakes Country Club. I think the format works well. I uh, just got back from the, um, the Tennis Industry Association Conference, which this year uh, piggybacked on the PGA Golf Show, which if you haven't been to that, is an absolute behemoth of an event. Um, that, that's, that is probably the best, learning, the best learning experience for, you know, club owners and general managers. Uh, and then, you know, the PTR symposium that's on this week is, 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 you know, there's no nicer place in the world to be than Hilton Head. And, you know, it's got a very friendly appeal to it. Um, the USPTA, obviously, um, the same sort of thing, but they moved their event to, around location-wise. It'll be in Las Vegas later this year. That, that's really, I mean, those are the bigger events. They're ones that you should definitely attend. I'm not saying you shouldn't attend them. Um, I, I just think that there, um, there's, there's, there's so much going on that it can be hard to necessarily be the best learning experience. And then you, you've got a lot of, you know, the USPTA do a nice job with the, with the regional events. Um, been fortunate enough to do a lot of those. And, you know, some are better than others, but, but um, those are a little bit more intimate. Um, we have one coming up in our mid-Atlantic section on, uh, I think it's March 1st and 2nd. But yeah, I mean, one thing that I, I, I really like was when I was coming back in, into sort of the, the conference side was I actually got approached to speak at URSA, which is the International Health Racket and Sports Club Association, which is actually the largest sports trade association in the world. And they have somewhere in the region of 20,000 people go through there in the week. It's at the San Diego Convention Center. It's the second week of March. But it's one thing that they do, and this kind of started the whole thought process that I've just shared with you about the content, was I remember 
being asked to speak and they told me to submit my slides and my slides go to a committee and then they basically send them back and they take off any personal branding, any sales pitch. You have to have a uniform slide deck because they value the value of the education that's on offer. Um, you've got to be careful when you go to conferences is that, and I think people that sell products, you, you sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier as well. They do themselves a disservice by when they have the time to educate the audience in trying to sell their product, as opposed to showing what they can do to solve solutions and then basically letting everybody know where they can get hold of them. You know, I've always been a fan of, you know, the, the sales pitch has to be, this is what I can do for you. And now you know where to find me versus, you know, you should buy this, you should buy this, you should buy this now. So, yes, sorry, that's my very long-winded, I could go on all day when it comes to uh, that. But the good thing right now is, as I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of new stuff coming up. There's online conferences and, um, you know, DeVore Decorous, obviously, and his tennis house are expanding what they're doing, and he's done very well. He's someone that's been very gracious to me over the years, and um, it, it's a good thing. You know, it's, it's like anything, though, I, you know, I, I want to see more coaches going to these conferences because I think they're important for education. And I, but I also think that the conferences have to hold themselves to a massively high standard in who they have speaking, what the offerings are, and how they are also um, engaging with the coaches that are attending. Exactly. Great stuff there. And yes, exactly how the speakers can benefit their their audiences. All very important stuff there. Appreciate that. And also a PTR symposium, shout out to Brian Parkinen, who I've had on my summit before. And he's a great guy who I've hung out with for at the uh, International Tennis Performance Association's uh, World Tennis Fitness Congress. But yeah, a lot of, lot of great stuff there, Tim. Appreciate that. I, I know Brian very well. The stories I could tell, but I won't. Yeah. <laughs> That might be for another episode or with a pint yeah, in hand. No. Uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, great guy. So as far as the tennis industry, Tim, because you, know, you, you obviously have a lot of great thoughts about how the state of the industry is and how to expand. So, I mean, can you give us your take on the current state of tennis and uh, you know how you think it's doing? And, and then maybe we'll get into some possible solutions or, or other uh, observations. So that's a great question and one that, I actually have my laptop open is extremely relevant because I do have a new presentation, which is, um, sorry, crushing the barriers to growth in the tennis industry. And the number one slide on the, the very first slide is we as an industry are beginning to wake up from about a 20 year phase of pure denial that the tennis industry is the best industry in the world and that it is growing. Now, I want to be clear when I talk about the tennis industry. I am talking specifically to the North American club functionality where you are going to have everything from your local swim and tennis club to your public courts all the way through your racket clubs, even up into the 3% of the country clubs. It's the way that people get exposed to tennis, right? Depending on where you are geographically and also uh, whatever your financial means are. Now, these, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, tennis was firstly a lot more popular, um, but there also weren't the distractions as well that we have today. You know, we don't need to, you know, there's there's so much data out there that, that, that proves that tennis is truly a sport for life and that Tennis will, you know, add years to your life, 
literally by playing it regularly. But what we've done as an industry is we've stopped working together and it's become, as the market has shrunk, it's become more of a every man for themselves versus we're all in this to win it together. And that's really a big part behind my message that I try and get out there is competition is good. When you're a junior tennis player, you want to play the person better than you because competition is good. But yet we work in an industry where the coach down the street is seen as a threat to me versus he's somebody that can make me better. And that in a nutshell is why we are now at a fork in the road as to where the tennis industry can head and where it, and also the, all the direction where it continued to go the wrong way. Um, so that starts with, in my opinion, you've got to have, we have to look at coaches. And I believe that coaches are the most important thing in growing the tennis industry because coaches are the first line of contact with anybody that wants to play, be it a five-year-old or be it someone that's come in at 40 and just wants to pick up a racket for the first time. So the coaches have to be trained at a level far superior to what is currently offered. And that's where the USTA and USTA University are currently putting together their accreditation, uh, which I believe, don't quote me on it, I'm, I'm involved a little bit, but um, I believe it's going to be a thousand hours that will be offered and that will, I, you know, will try and mandate. Uh, that's one of the challenges I think they're going to have, but mandate that that education process is continued and ongoing to improve the quality of coaches all around the country. That is not to say that there are not some absolutely amazing coaches in this country. There absolutely are. But the problem is, is that they're too isolated and in too many small pockets. And we basically need to have, I'm by no means to socialist in, in my economic thinking, but we need to have a, a universal standard that is so high. I mean, they do this in Europe and look at the benefit you see out of France and Spain in particular, where, you know, you serve an apprenticeship, you create a licensing, you have to go get recertified at a very high standard. That, that is something that the industry has finally recognized has to change. Because if you don't have that, you don't have a thriving business. And if you don't have a thriving business, you don't have growth. We can't say we're growing. Pros aren't paid correctly because clubs can't stay open and the clubs are not you know, bursting at the seams and it, it's all a knock-on effect. And then the manufacturers are struggling because no one's buying rackets. It, it, it all begins, in my opinion, with the quality and education of the first people that will interact with any consumer coming to a court. And that is the coach. Yeah, that's a really great point there, Tim. And I think we should, like you said, really just take an attitude of working together with coaches. You know, I, I think the online world, to be honest, does a pretty good job with it because you'll often find we'll, we'll be promoting each other's work fairly often and saying, hey, you know, this person is very good at teaching technique. This coach is very good at teaching fitness or, you know, maybe I don't have time to work with you one-on-one, -on -one, but this coach does. And, and so that's, that's a great point there. There. And I'm wondering, too, if you have any particular insights on coaches and like what are there any because, you know, you've been, I think, uh, 
afforded a, a lot more knowledge by by studying economics and knowing more about how that all works. And I'm glad the U.S. PTA is going to be implementing this program you mentioned. But are there any particular resources like books or anything that that you've read that you could suggest that coaches read up upon to to increase their knowledge of how to you know be better on the business side of of things yeah absolutely i mean where do i start on that i've always believed that and this is what again i have to reiterate to people because people that don't hear me correctly on this think i'm trying to tell people to leave the tennis industry i want people to search for answers outside of the tennis industry and bring it back in to the tennis industry the reason why tennis is not the number one industry in the country despite every reason why it should be is because we look for the solutions inside an industry that doesn't know what the solution is the fortune 500 companies If they don't know the solution, they go and find the solution, right? And that often means from other competing industries. So first and foremost, just be engaged in in a simple way. You know, watch, you know, as silly as it sounds, watch Shark Tank. You know, the amount that you can learn from how to how to do things correctly, how not to do things correctly, how to seek investment, how to present yourself, how to speak to an audience and, and all of these sort of things, you know, and that's just an easy, fun way to do it. You know, when it comes to reading some some things that, you know, I mean, there's a whole multitude of books. One book I love is by Jeb Blount. It's called People by You. It's a short, easy read. Um, it's fantastic. There's another book out there that a good friend of mine, Jeremy Carl, and I wrote called The Complete Coach, which uh, gives a lot of uh, background and business acumen to, uh, to coaches. I want to make this clear because I made the point earlier. I have a ton of free articles and resources on my website, and you, you won't find a single place on the website where I want you to pay money or do anything. Um, it's just literally all the articles that I've written. Um, for various magazines, Club Business Solutions, Club, um, sorry, um, Club Business International, PTR Advantage Magazine, and a few others. All of those articles are on the website. And uh, anyone that knows me, they are all business driven, business and marketing driven with regards to coaching careers, clubs, and, and the overall business of tennis. I think the other thing that is really important, and we talked about it earlier, what a lot of coaches don't recognize is if you are a coach, you have a full, I don't care whether you're an academy, you're at a public park or a, a, a racket club. If you've been around coaching for a while and you're good at what you do, the value of the people that come and take lessons with you, the intellectual and financial capabilities of that network, are so robust, more so maybe than any other industry. But we also have to understand that people that keep coming back for tennis lessons, we've struck an emotional connection. And if you've been doing this a while, coaches don't like to ask them for help. You know, everybody that with blue chip, everyone from our, my lawyer, my doctor, my dentist, investors, they're all clients or referrals of clients because you've developed such great relationships. And just like you want to help someone with their serve, that client that maybe is a high powered lawyer and you need a little legal advice or a little bit of understanding on the business track, you honestly think they wouldn't help you out. So it's understanding like really how much power you have as a coach. You know, you're so ingrained. If you have you handle yourself with integrity and you do a great job, 
there is everybody from PhDs to JDs to people that work in philanthropic roles to business type, uh, you know, teachers, the lot. The answers to so many of the questions are right there in front of you. It's just people don't know how to leverage that network or even how to ask. And that's something that, my goodness, if, if coaches could really start doing that, you know, so many of those, you know, how, how do we get a little bit better at business or how do we, how do I build a company? How do I do this? The answers are right there in front of you. I guarantee you every single coach that's half, worth half their salt has that sort of a network right in front of them. And it's whether or not they choose to use it. Awesome tips, Tim. Really appreciate that. Also, in, in listening to your interview with Mike on, uh, I believe, Next Gen Tennis podcast, you talked about creating algorithms that can maximize the cost per square footage of a tennis court and why that's so vital for us, especially for, for us in our particular region of uh, Maryland, Virginia, D.C. So can you kind of talk about that particular concept? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, again, it's, I kind of, this is usually what gets a laugh when I talk is, you know, I've all of a sudden become this authority on health club data analytics and, you know, math was never my, <laughs> math was never really my strong point and especially data mining and so on and so forth. Um, what happened was uh, four, probably four or five years ago, a friend of mine was working up on Wall Street uh, called Dimitri Adler and he came back to DC and he said to me, hey, Tim, I'm going to leave my very cushy job. And I'm going to start a progressive data analytics education company in D.C. And obviously, this went right over my head. I was like, you know, what, what the hell is that? Um, but, what I, but what I do like is I, uh, you know, we've talked about it. I like to leverage my network. I like to help my friends out. And I like to build businesses. So I tried to send him some clients. And I sort of hung around. He had, a, he had an office at the WeWorks office right by the Verizon Center. But through hanging out with him and, and working on some of these projects and getting involved a little bit in an advisory capacity, I started to actually pay attention to what he was preaching and teaching. And, you know, it's, it's not a term that I pen, but it's viewing the world through the data lens. Right. And again, this also goes back to my point about why the tennis industry is in trouble, because nobody has been paying attention to data in the health club space, and especially in the tennis and health club space, and especially in the indoor tennis and health club space at all. And the answers are all there right in front of you. So I started to look at things a little differently. And, and very quickly, I just started to, instead of making decisions based on what I thought I knew to be true, based on what I had been told by a previous uh, director or mentor or something, we all have front back office software. We all have court booking systems. We all survey our members. And by the way, if you don't have any of those things, you need to change that tomorrow. And instead of using it in a reactionary measure, I actually just started to use it. I started to look at check-in data. I started to analyze, analyze zip code analysis so I could figure out where I was spending my marketing dollars. I started to understand, you know, utilizing court space in downtime and creating heat maps, for example, just the way Uber works with regards to times when you can um, purchase courts at a higher price point instead of it just being, oh, well, you know, prime time starts at seven every day of the week. Well, okay, maybe that worked 30 years ago, but why are we still doing it? Has anyone asked the question? So I just started to ask these questions and I still am so far from knowing all the answers, but we saw a radical change in how we were able to streamline our operations, engage with our consumer and our client better. Um, and also, um, you know, we saw 18% increase on ROI in the three years of basically just onboarding as many data lens ways of looking things into our organization. And, you know, I hate to say it, we, you know, we've grown successful because we go and take over clubs or I consult with clubs, 
that are living 30, 40 years ago. And, um, you know, and I have to be honest with you, you know, we, I, I'm mad at myself because we, we had had steady growth at Blue Chip, but my God, we were just, it was just pure luck for a number of years, you know, um, until we started to really, until this moment happened with my friend and when he started this company and, you know, we've now worked very closely on, you know, like we said, specific algorithms that health clubs can utilize in order to, um, as I said, the, be better operationally and, and therefore have all the other benefits that come with that. And, you know, I mean, just on a side note, you know, one thing that, again, like nobody knows the answer to this is like, why do we teach a one hour private lesson? Like, where's the data behind that? Like, why? And again, I, I don't know, but it's just a simple question. It, you know, that's like the highest level, like most obvious thing to ask. You know, one thing that we've done, I'll give you an example. Well, I have two, two key examples of where data analytics and data mining in particular has really helped us. And anyone can do this. Like I said, you have to understand, I'm not a data scientist, right? I just am somebody that, you know, cares very deeply about growing the game and I want to have a successful business and I want to employ people and I want the best for coaches. And so therefore, everyone's got to be in it to win it, you know, and they've got to be looking outside, sorry, thinking outside the box and looking for solutions. And But a couple of sort of, you know, for anyone listening that, you know, runs a club or their business or, you know, this is, this is a typical occurrence at a club. You know, oh, our membership sales are down. Therefore, we, let, we cut costs by letting go of our front desk and our salespeople. Now, let's think about that for a second. Your membership and client retention is down the tubes and you let go of the two people that are the ones responsible for bringing people in. This happens, I mean, we laugh, but this happens 99% of the time when clubs begin to fail, right? So it's again, it's a reactionary measure. Now, why did you get yourself in that situation? Well, operationally, absolutely, you've got to improve. But number one is this, the tennis industry for so many years has been very stubborn in telling the consumer, your clinic starts at four o'clock, your price is this, and this is what we are going to teach you. We don't have that luxury anymore because we are living in such a diversified portfolio of things that people can spend their ancillary income on is that we need to engage with our consumer, our potential consumer and our clients. And that means you have to communicate. So we got massively into surveying. We use a company called Medallia, which um, uh, Ritz Carlton, Apple use. Yes, it costs some money, but my God, is it worth it? We survey the hell out of all of our all of our clients, potential clients, because we want to know what you want. What is it that's going to bring you in? What time? Oh, you can't make that class because the traffic pattern at that point in day or school gets let out. We people just assume it's a universal standard that clinics start at four o'clock. Has anyone truly gone and checked exactly what time schools are getting out today? No, people don't have that level of detail. And it's madness because if people don't have a great first experience, they're not going to do it. And also if it's not convenient. So we started to get a lot wiser in asking our consumers how we were doing. And secondly, what is it that you want? And then we started to curate better programming, better offerings that are not just tennis. Absolutely. We, this is a business. You know, we need to have a multitude of offerings in order to make tennis grow that can support tennis. The other thing that, you know, data analytics, uh, sorry, mining and one thing that comes to mind is I consulted for a club. I remember I was talking at Ursa. I've told the story a few times. 
is I was talking at Ursa um, last year, and at the end of the, the, the talk, a, a guy came up to me and he said, hey, I'd like to hire you to come out and consult at a club in Seattle. Now, the club didn't have any tennis. It was in a very nice location, well-to-do club. Uh, it had a swimming pool, spa, gym, aerobics, or, or, or group fitness. Uh, no tennis or anything like that. So I go out there and, and, and sort of looking down the line items and, and the club is financially very successful. And this gentleman who was the general manager basically was looking at how it was that I can um, potentially expand and do even better. So really, you know, a great situation to be in. And I'm looking down the financials and they look really good. And I notice one line item every month of a $20,000 expense to Comcast. And I said to him, what are you, what, what, you know, what is this? He says, well, you know, we were doing so well. I thought to myself, you know, what can we do to make us even better? So obviously he thinks to himself, well, we must have local TV advertising. They were already financially extremely successful. And anyone knows that any health club or tennis club worth its salt, your number one way of getting anyone in the door is referral. It's got nothing to do with putting yourself on a local TV advertisement. So this guy is spending $20,000 a month to Comcast for local television advertising. And this is the scary bit. He didn't have any metrics as to whether anyone actually had ever come into his club because they'd seen the advertisement. So that got added straight away. So again, it's not to say, I, you know, I've got to be careful because I'm, I'm maybe coming off like I'm not, I had to, I had to go out there and find the solutions to try. And that's the, that's the message here. We, are all, we all should constantly be trying to get better, auditing ourselves, auditing our teams, um, and trying to find solutions. Because, you know, it, it seems obvious, but it's, it, it's not clearly, right? So, um, you know, the data side of it has given me just a whole different perspective on what's possible. And, you know, it's something that every single club, I mean, online booking systems, for example, people use it to book court. Nobody is analyzing who's utilizing the courts the most, what's people's propensity to pay more for membership because they're using the club so many times. All of these things are, if you want to be efficient and successful in any business in today's world, then this has to be done, right? And unfortunately, in the tennis industry right now, and in fact, maybe in the tennis and health club industry, there's not definitive education on this stuff, which is why I've definitely sort of found a niche in what I talk about. But that's only going to go so far, you know, and, and I could, you know, give you a, a lot of a, one last example through, you know, when most people come into a health club, be it through uh, a check in card or, you know, you give your name or, you know, I've seen everything from eye scanners now to fingerprints. Even you need to know who's coming in and out of your club. But again, the most people say, well, we need to know that for a liability standpoint. We need to know who's in the club if there was an incident or something. And absolutely, that's correct. But that's the number one answer on why people need people to check in into your club, right? The reality is you can very quickly curate better operational standards and, and, and job descriptions, specifically say your front desk members, right? So front desk hands down the most important employees in any club. And, you know, often are very undertrained, underpaid and all that, but that's, that's for another, another day. But what we started to do was, you know, I'll, I'll paint the scenario. You know, I would walk through the club and at one moment, the, the front desk person is completely swarmed. They've got a line of three or four people trying to pay. One person is trying to change a court booking. The phone's ringing off the hook. And that's one scenario. 
you come back maybe at a later time in the day and it's quieter and that front desk person is sitting there on their iPhone and you say something reactive like, oh, get off your phone. I need you to, you know, vacuum around here or do something. The problem is it's all very much off the cuff and unorganized. If you start to understand the traffic patterns that come in and out of your club, we were able to write job descriptions for our front desk employees that give specific guidance based on how busy we are to 15-minute increments throughout the course of the entire day. Now, think about it from both a cost-effective strategy, but most importantly, think about it from a consumer experience. We are better prepared to deal with the busier times as we are also able now to be more strategic in the downtime so that we're not ever wasting any money from an operational standpoint. And obviously from a consumer standpoint, it's more efficient if you're trying to utilize the desk or more efficient because something else is being done in the club at that given time that also aids for the benefit of the consumer. Great stuff, Tim. Yeah, there's nothing worse than to come into any establishment and see there be two people and with like a thousand orders to handle and and things like that. I was just thinking of a pizza place I was at recently. But Mm -hmm. yeah, and and the tracking, I mean, tracking in any in anything is so crucial. I mean, you know, I've actually amped up my tracking in my personal life uh, from things like, you know, everyday tracking, what time I go to sleep and, and, you know, my tennis practices, because without tracking, you don't know what's going on. So, I mean, that obviously, like you mentioned, transfers over, especially to business and the metrics. So that's wonderful. And Tim, obviously, I want to you to talk about uh, blue chip kind of, uh, you know, what problem specifically you created that to to solve or problems, of course, and kind of just to describe the organization? Sure. So again, you know, right time, right place in many things. Um, I was working, as I said earlier in the, in the podcast here, I was working seven days a week trying to, you know, make ends meet at Burke Racket and Swim Club and got a call back in 2000, late 2007 from Mount Vernon Athletic Club in Alexandria saying, you know, we'd like you to become the director of tennis. And that was because I happened to teach one of the owner's wives. I never knew she owned a tennis club. I didn't know anything at this point in time, but I turned it down because at the time, as I said, I have an affinity for the tennis director at Burke, a gentleman called Paul Fisher, who, you know, and then I was beginning to find my feet. I was beginning to get my 40 hours a week. I was beginning to be able to pay some bills and um, I felt like I was getting better as a coach and I was, you know, taking that very seriously. So eventually, six months later, I get a call again and they sort of give me a really great offer. And uh, for the first time, I was going to have, you know, some benefits and a salary. And at 25, I thought this was amazing. And basically, the club was about to go out of business and they gave me a pretty sweet deal to say, look, if you can turn it around, um, then, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you. So we went from $120,000 in ancillary revenue to $1.8 million in 18 months. And that was nothing more than it was really bad when I went there to, you know, had a, had a great team and a lot of hustle and a lot of desire. And what I didn't realize at the time was the club is an outlier. It's owned by one of the largest privately held real estate companies in the country. And on turning around this one tennis club that they knew nothing about, they stupidly said to me, uh, hey, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I didn't really think I was in this position to turn clubs around. You know, my goal was to really just develop as a coach and maybe try and become a tennis director at that point. And I said, well, hold on a minute. If you guys, with all the money that you've got, if you if you can't run a club, then there must be tons of other people that don't have that sort of support that must be in some desperate, desperate need. 
So we then started basically approaching, and funnily enough, for a long period of time, we managed the club that I started off working at for a number of years. But basically going in and helping club, and whether that meant consulting, managing, changing some of the operational structures, consulting, so on and so forth, and building the team. So at this point in time today, we have, you know, with our operational staff and our coaches, we have somewhere between 50 and 70 employees. Blue Chips created easily 30 full-time tennis positions that at clubs that would have closed if we hadn't have been there to help them. You know, we're very fortunate with our parent company that we can offer a different sort of strategic pathway for coaches where you might not get paid the most, but you're going to have, you know, continuing education opportunities, 401k, healthcare benefits, paid time off. We'll provide you business cards and all that good stuff to support you because we see the value in keeping these people. And it's not to say I've not hired some of the wrong people through my time. I absolutely, I've made many, many mistakes, but I've also been surrounded by a very loyal team that's expanded through the years. And, um, you know, Blue Chip as it stands today, you know, we are, I don't want to give the exact amount over the, uh, over the air here, but I mean, we're doing multi, multiple millions of dollars in annual revenues and, um, and that's diversified. I mean, our portfolio now includes the management consulting side, but we also have corporate wellness contracts with some of the largest companies in DC, personal training, spa operations. Um, we do data, like I said, data auditing on health clubs and a few other things as well that we have. And for me personally, I in 2015, I stepped down running Blue Chip. I stayed involved on the business development side. That's where a lot of the speaking and writing for any of you that listening who are familiar with me have then been allowed the time. But actually went back to lead blue chip at the back end of last year and we have uh you know as i do this interview now we have two new clubs coming online in the next few weeks that we've been working on and we have about 10 clubs that are now outside of the dmv that we are in the process of either early negotiations or close to signing contracts to to manage and or invest in nothing is a clear out, outright purchase at this point in time but so like i said from day one tennis is afforded me such wonderful opportunities and to meet and be in you know, some of the best places and meet some people who are absolute heroes of mine and meet so many wonderful people that, you know, I, I don't see, think I'm going anywhere. I keep getting sucked back into uh, to continue this, this, this mission. <laughs> wonderful, Tim. Well, I mean, you and Blue Chip have obviously done so many incredible things for the tennis industry and tennis clubs and getting them back on their feet. So we really do appreciate that because, you know, one of the worst things you can hear is when a tennis club is closed, you know, down near you. And, uh, you know, that, that signal, that's, it's not a good signal. So you've done some incredible work, Tim. One fun question for you. If you could have a huge billboard displayed perhaps near a highway, a a very well-trafficked highway, and you could write anything that you want on it for everybody to see, what would that billboard say? What a great question. I mean, I, I, something kind of like the old uh, draft posters you used to see, you know, tennis wants you, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it's got to be exposure. You got to have something that is that people see it and they say, oh, yeah, I want, you know, that's the whole point of any billboard. Right. I want to give that a try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. T- tennis wants you. Something like that. I like it. That's the best I got on the top. I'll come back and I give it a little bit more thought. Uh, That's the best I've got off the top of my head. Ah, that's not bad. I mean, I think we could also get a really good picture conjured up. Some, well, we can we can make that work. But yeah, if you know, if you have another one too, let me know. But as I ask you a couple more questions, but uh, I like that one. And where can we go, uh, Tim, to learn more about you and uh, Blue Chip as well? 
So uh, you, you, uh, Blue Chip, you can access the bluechiptennis.net. That on there shows our consulting services. Our Blue Chip, the website is in the process, actually. We're switching over to MindBody across the board. And so the new website will be the same address, but is not live yet. But that's one place. I There's a lot of crossover, but timbainton.com, like I said, check it out. I've got free eBooks on there. There is not one thing on there that's going to ask for a dollar from you. It's purely a way of sharing, like I said, a lot of the business acumen that either I've realized or learned from other people and, and trying to get that information out to the tennis world. It's a lot easier and less expensive for people to go there than to come, you know, fly to a conference and hear me speak. So I urge you to do that, even though the conference organizers aren't going to want to hear me say that. Yeah. So those are the, those are the two main resources right now. And you know, Blue Chip, um, watch this space. We have a few things I can't talk about just yet, but we um, we are about to definitely diversify as well into, um, you know, I called it Blue Chip Sports Management for a reason, is that there was no end game. And we've, we've diversified a little bit, but the diversification is all to grow and sustain what is at the heart of blue chip, which is tennis. So we, we've, we've been studying very closely other successful sports entities and franchises and we've got some cool stuff uh, in the pipeline so wonderful stuff tim and of course i will have all the links uh mentioned on the show today with tim uh on the show notes page so you can definitely go there to check all that out you can go to uh, tennisfiles.com slash podcast to see all the podcasts tim also where can we follow you and blue chip on social media yeah, I mean all the usual. Um, on Facebook, I'm. It, you've got Tim Bainton. If you put Tim Bainton in, you'll get my personal page, and you also get my professional page. And you type in Blue Chip Tennis Academy. That's also on Facebook. All three of those are also on Instagram. I think it's Tim Bainton is my Twitter. And but yeah, personally, I'm. You know, a lot of the educational stuff I put out there is via Facebook. I, I like to comment and at least sort of try and force dialogue in a lot of these tennis groups. And you know coaches all around the world and again very humbled by it they, they reach out and as i do to them too and and just ask questions and like i said i'm i'm here to help you know I'm, I'm i think i'm pretty generous with my time and um you know anyone that's listening that has a question about what we've talked about today or something that they've seen in the past or you know and that's that's the whole part about your network you know is you know i want to i want to be able to to help them or refer them to someone that can help them and um and also you know somebody that's in the tennis and health club business i want to know and continue to learn what other people are doing well and what other people are struggling with because we're not bulletproof either we want to learn and see what other programs and what other innovators are doing and also want to understand what some of the other problems are as well that maybe we haven't even recognized yet and in today's day and age especially through social media there's no excuse for not having great dialogue and that's something that i think um you talked we talked about the introvert earlier but you know coaches you know just, uh, phil knight the best line in, in his book shoe dog you know he I wake up every morning to beat the competition. We're all competitive people and, you know, the tennis industry can become quite, quite introverted and, you know, protective of, of what they're doing and, and how they're doing things. And I just think that the ambition for the industry has to be one of collective sharing of ideas. And like, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, I had an epiphany where 
I didn't need to be winning these awards. That wasn't how we were going to grow. I, I needed to have a, a rock star team and I needed to have people, you know, that wanted to understand, you know, what Blue Chip was about, what, what I had to offer, what my team had to offer, you know, and, and utilizing that rather than it being for selfish endeavors. Because at the end of the day, that's how you're going to succeed. And that's also how people are going to want to be a part of your bigger network and, and will be people that, you know, you're never going to please everybody, but you want to have those people on your side that are saying, look, you know, this guy, Tim or Blue Chip, you know what, they're, they're doing some good stuff. You should check it out. You know, that's how we grow. That's how any industry grows. Exactly, Tim, by working together. Exactly. I love that, Tim. So I will close this one off. And, you know, I, again, I really appreciate it. We've been talking for a while and it's in, been incredible information that I'm sure that everyone Thanks. will well, it's been great. Yeah, yeah, really enjoy. And so I want to close with this question, Tim, which is, what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? Absolutely. For those of you, I, I do coach, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do it all. I'm <laughs> Almost. Actually, I'm actually going to Cincinnati this weekend. I, I teach one of the best 12-year-olds in the country. And um, uh, it's always, I don't get to do it as much as I have done in the past, but I, I'll be up there this weekend. So that's, uh, that's kind of fun. But um, look, I think the best, tip that I ever heard in tennis is that it's your ability. There's a a massive difference. And I'm going to speak to anybody that's not on the pro level. There's a massive difference between seeing the ball and recognizing the ball. Now to recognize is to understand. So let's give you a scenario. You have a club player, say maybe a three, five lady, And their improvement, in my opinion, the number one thing uh, impeding their improvement is that they see the ball, for example, coming off the racket and coming to the forehand side, but they spend that extra split second or two looking for more information because they've seen the ball coming to them versus recognizing the ball coming to them. Now, that's a skill set that needs to be explained and but can be taught. You know, when Federer sees the ball come off Djokovic's racket, he's already turned and gone to the forehand side almost in the instant that he's before he's even struck the ball because of the ability to recognize, right? And then once you've started that in motion, as the ball is coming, your ability, because you're now in motion, you're engaged, the, the height of the ball, the spin of the ball, the landing of the ball, all of that stuff, you're then just this supercomputer that will naturally get into the best position you can. So if you're in a club play and you're someone that, you know, you're struggling to get better, really challenge yourself to recognize the ball coming off the racket versus seeing the ball coming off the racket. Love that, Tim. That's great. And that's actually very unique. You know, we're up to, I think, 84 episodes, and I have not heard that particular tip when asking this. So good stuff, Tim. I really do, again, want to thank you so much for your time today and for, you know, your innovative mind and for all the great information that you're, you know, producing and and sharing with the tennis community and and for all your help in furthering the game. It's really much appreciated and definitely looking forward to to meeting you hopefully soon at at one of these conferences or at an event. And again, really appreciate and really enjoyed having you on the podcast, Tim. Hey, Melvin, thank you so much, man. I I, I appreciate the time and it's, you know, like, like I said, I mean, sincerely, I just want to see I want to see tennis be the number one sporting industry in the world. I think we have the greatest sport. I wouldn't be in this industry if I didn't. 
And it's kind of like what I most, you know, two things. We got to work together better. We got to promote each other better. And if we do that, you're going to get more people wanting to be a part of this. And you got to understand that if you don't have, go back to what I said about Shark Tank, a lot of coaches are put off when you start to talk about the money. The reality is this, the number one rule of Shark Tank is if you don't have sales, you don't have investment. Now, it's the same in any business. We've got to have lines out the door of people wanting to get on your tennis courts and into your clubs. And the way we do that, and that, and if we can do that, then we will have investment. Now, investment means investment in everything across the board, in people buying more, in clubs being built, in money to manufacturers, in money in scholarships, in philanthropic uh, endeavors in the tennis world. It's all linked. So make sure you're doing it with integrity. Make sure you're doing it the best you can, but make sure that you as a coach and as a club, that your business is growing and growing the right way. Awesome stuff to close, Tim. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And you know, all the best, Tim. Hope to chat again soon. Love it. Thanks. Thanks so much. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Tim Bainton. Uh, Tim, huge shout out to you. Thanks for coming on to the podcast and spending so much time with us today. I know it was definitely a longer one than usual, although I do have quite a few that are over an hour for sure. And this was great. So I really, really enjoyed the insights and especially like I mentioned in the intro, just the the passion and dedication to the craft uh, by Tim and really enjoyed hearing his insights and his career development and tips for all of you who are trying to break into the coaching industry or uh, to relate how Tim approaches uh, his craft in other industries as well and also to tennis itself. So I really appreciate you all listening uh, and I really would appreciate it so much if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast and you can do that by just hitting the subscribe button in the podcast app of your choice uh, right next to the Tennis Files podcast. So that's the term obviously that you can search for in your podcast app of choice. Particularly for iTunes, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes to check out the podcast and subscribe. So I really do appreciate that if you could subscribe and also Also, as I often like to do at the end of this show, I will leave you with a quote. And this quote is by Confucius, actually one of my favorites. Uh, I remember one time in college actually doing a a weird like mini song to Confucius quotes. So I don't think I'll describe that any further, but shout out to Mike if you're listening. And so, yes, so our, the, the quote today is by Confucius and Confucius said, our greatest glory is not in never failing, but in rising every time we fall. It's a great quote there by Confucius. And as always, you can head over to the show notes page to check out any links that we mentioned on the show today, including uh, the uh, Blue Chip Sports Management links and socials and Tim's socials, etc. And you can go to tennisfiles.com slash 84. And likewise, for any episode, you know, obviously it's just tennisfiles.com slash and then the number for the show notes page and, and to obviously listen to the particular episode as well. Or you can go to tennisfiles.com slash podcast to check them all out or on any podcast app that that's where you can also check out all the episodes and listen to them. So I really do appreciate as always your support and all your kind messages, emails and reviews too. I, I read them all. So I really do appreciate it. And you know, I try my best to reply to all of your messages. So just in case I haven't yet, sorry about that, but I definitely will. And uh, I'm also gearing up for Tennis Summit 2019. I'm in the process of figuring out the lineup for that. So if you have any suggestions for high level coaching, 
coaches and, you know, ones who have a great reach who will really impact you guys, just let me know. Happy to hear about that. And you can email me at mirban at tennisfiles.com. That's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfiles.com. So again, really appreciate everything you're doing and uh, just keep improving every single day. That's the main thing that we can do to improve the quality of our lives and our game as well. So with that, I appreciate you listening to the Tennis Files podcast and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit tennisfiles.com.